Adam or Alan and Eileen, if you can hear me okay. Got a uh, new and hopefully better mic, and uh, very good. Great is is good. Thank you, Alan and Eileen. Shalom, and I'm glad. Hopefully, it'll sound good from now on and consistently good. Um, very good. Uh, several things tonight, more than we can do in an hour as, as usual, not surprisingly. Uh, all of the Parshas in the Torah are loaded with significance and, and infinite truth, as you good people know, and uh, none more so than the, uh, than the Parshas in Sefer Bereshis, uh, the beginnings of everything the beginnings of uh, Ha'olam, Ha'chalal, and uh, the entire universe, the beginnings of, of heaven and earth as we see them, and Adam HaRishon, Chava, and uh, Noah, whom you people know so well. And uh, when I was looking, came into the site again, I was thinking about how fitting the story of Noah is to our day and how how central the role of you people is in our world today. It is uh, so timely, as I said last week, and as you probably think all the time correctly, uh, because we really are living amidst a mabul of uh, a mabul of Hamas and uh, and lies and uh, all kinds of uh, di of terrible uh, behaviors, official lies, not the least terrible, because they keep people with their eyes shut. So they, they do not see nor can they understand. You know those verses. And uh, so on, the story of Avraham and his family, his challenges, his story being one of the uh, focal points that provided the title for this course. So uh, we, we live in very uh, challenging times. Uh, I guess it's for the better. Like it says, you know that expression. Right, by the way, if you ever, if you totally miss something and you want me to explain it or repeat it, just type in a little note and and I'll try to keep checking over there. Gamtula Tova, you know, means everything will be for the best, uh, translate it loosely, or this too will be for good, and that's what we've uh, got to uh, believe. And if you have, if you really have good emuna and uh, you're right there, then you feel it in your bones, uh, regardless uh, what's happening, it will be for good. Apropos, the uh, story, uh, part of which, because we're having a little technical difficulties with transferring even a short document to the sign, you can see the first half of the document on the whiteboard, story about Hebron. But, uh, not a story of ancient days, not a story from almost 3,700 years ago. If you can do the math really quickly, you know that it was approximately 3,685 years ago. That's a pretty long time. Uh, approximately uh, 1,700 BCE. In, uh, let me see, Avraham was 137. So it was 2085. In the year 2085, that Sarah Imanu passed away and uh, Abraham went over to Hebron. The, the commentators like Ramban and many others, the sages uh, from the Mishnah, uh, discussing of whether Abraham had already been in Hebron for how long, when had he come from Be'er Sheva. Anyway, Sarah has passed away, and Avraham, of course, needs a suitable uh, resting place for her and for his entire family. All the souls he's made, uh, 
and brought with him from Haran and the souls that he has made marvelous expression uh, since he's been in the land of Canaan what's uh, what Hashem has already told him is the land promised to him and his descendants after him and uh, he has that extended discussion with Ephron the Hittite that the Hatti which leads to him, leads to, uh, him uh, purchasing as a possession for his descendants through Yitzchak uh, his son, his only one, as it says so many times, Bincha Yechidcha, Bincha Yechidecha, your only son who you love, the son who is the one and only son, as far as Hashem is concerned, uh, in regards to maintaining the uh, the Brit, the Brit Haaretz and the Brit Milo, both and eventually the Brit Shalom. But I thought. Given the, nat- given the title of this course and uh, the importance to us of understanding what, you know, what we face in the world all the time, uh, whether we are aware of it or not, whether we want to be aware of it or not, it touches us, touches all have all the brio team, uh, all human all Hashem's uh, human creatures and that's this 20th, the 20th century story of Hebron uh, which uh, this you can see right here Dutch journalist Pierre von Passen whose works are certainly findable on the web and wrote at least one book I know here's an account of uh, the extremely terrible pogrom carried out by the uh, modern-day Amalek, the Amalekites, uh, Arabs, most of them Muslims, and uh, on the Jews of Hebron in August 1929. Now, this is the very same place that 3,700 years ago, as we read in the Parsha, Avraham so ceremoniously with such enormously dignified courtesy obtained from Ephraim the Hittite as a burial place for Sarah and himself and their descendants after them and where the Jews are living to this day surrounded by the same Amalekites who are uh, who under the prodding of the British and under the very eyes of the British and the the implicit and behind the scenes the explicit urging of the British carried out a slaughter of the Jews of Hebron in 1989. You see the title of his book, Days of Our Years, probably very worth reading. I've read only excerpts of his writing quite a number of them and he was clearly someone who cared about the Jewish people and their restoration to Zion as part of God's plan for genuine peace instead of peace process peace in the world and he cared enough to make several visits to Hebron before the British declared it off uh, out of bounds and off limits to anyone especially to journalists because they were not going to let to the outside world accounts of what they had allowed to happen on their watch under their responsibility to Jews living in the most ancient city in the world and you hear here's the story in a nutshell Uh, the Mufti of Jerusalem uh, Amin El Husseini who was actually a, a great uncle uh, or of Yasser Arafat or a second or third cousin a family relation of Arafat who followed in his footsteps and who spent most of World War II in Germany and in Berlin making speeches over radio to the Arab world for his good friend Hisler 
and uh, exhorting the Arabs to, to murder all the Jews in the good old uh, Islamic way, sad to say. Anyway, he disseminated and had disseminated photographs of the mosque in Jerusalem, uh, it destroyed, which unfortunately it still has not been destroyed. They stirred up the local Arabs. The British policemen and soldiers there watched. Uh, and there was uh, first a, a series of limited uh, but murderous attacks. Rabbi Slonim, a, a grandson, I believe, of Rebetzin Menucha Rachel Slonim, who was a daughter of the uh, Alter Rebbe of uh, Lubavitch, Schneer Zalman of Liadi, the uh, third Lubavitcher Rebbe, as they say, a great, uh, a great Hasidic leader. And uh, she settled in Hebron uh, in the 1830s, I believe it was, with her husband and her children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren continued to lead the community right up into the 1930s when many of them, in 1929, when many of them were murdered. For example, Rabbi uh, Slonim. Mounted police, Arab troops, the British loved to hire Arab police, uh, appeared outside his house. Uh, the Jews in Hebron in this time were famous uh, in the area for giving free medical attention and food to the Arabs and treating them like friends and even family. Uh, but the Arabs uh, attacked all the Jews who remained in Hebron. Actually, about a third of the community left because they had some warnings that the Arabs were being stirred up and they should not rely on the British and their police to protect them. And uh, many, many people were murdered. And as you can see, I don't want to uh, fool around with the uh, technology here too much, but you can see the final lines at the bottom of the page here. It's quite disturbing enough for anyone as this is Van Tassen's writing, uh, the ceilings, when he, he eventually got into some of the buildings, including the main Rabbi Slonim's house, were about three or four dozen people, mostly children and very old men and women, had gathered feeling that they would be safe in the Rabbi Don Slonim's house, even if nowhere else, and at least because they were just very old and very young people. No, even the ceilings, not just the floor and the walls, but the ceilings were splashed with blood. And as, as uh, Ben Passan writes, when he visited it, it looked like a, uh, a slaughterhouse. Now this is, uh, this is part of the uh, history that we need to know, and it certainly is part of the challenge. Uh, of the Eternal One uh, to understand how such things can happen. Uh, tell me, are you hearing me good? Are you hearing me smoothly, evenly, without peaks and valleys? Okay, I'll assume that's it. You hearing me okay? Yes, good. Uh, here we are reading this extremely beautiful Parsha. Uh, of doings in Avraham's life. Remember, this follows very closely um, upon, in terms of major significance event in his life. Remember, the Torah, of course, is not a newspaper. It's not a daily. We don't hear about the plane crashes and fires and ambulance chasing every single day. We hear of the major events. You know, of course, uh, probably virtually every day in the life of someone at the level of Avraham was in, filled with major events from our perspective, but we go from the Akeda and uh, at the site of Mount Moria, which maybe I'll talk about a bit later tonight, the meanings of Mount Moria, the Temple Mount, and uh, to the death uh, of Sarah, 
uh, to the reaffirmation first of Hashem to Abraham that uh, because you've been willing to do this for me even to give your only son he reiterates it again your son your only one or as we would probably say in American English your one and only son I will surely bless you and greatly increase your offspring like the stars of heaven and your offspring and, you'll, and they say uh, well you know Hashem has already told Abraham that He's saying it, but he's reiterating it now in a way to say that never will your chosen offspring, meaning your offspring through Yitzchak, who already said, I'll maintain my covenant with Yitzchak, the son that will come out of you from you and Sarah from your own bodies, will be like the sand on the seashore, and they will inherit the gate of their enemy. It's not just that they will be extremely numerous. And this is real. This is a challenge to our Emuna. It's a challenge to our faith because, look, we have to face the fact. We have to have faith. Maybe in some ways it approaches the level of Abraham because the, the, even the headlines of history show us in the last hundred years and certainly in the 2,000 years since the Roman Empire came into Eretz Israel that what both Edom and Ishmael both uh, the western world and the Islamic world have been gathered together in uh, apparent desire to exterminate the chosen people the descendants of Abraham through his his son his only one as Hashem uh, and his angel repeatedly told Abraham and there's been a terrible decimation of the Jewish people, something that was called for explicitly not only by the Nazis not only by Ukrainian Jew haters, not only by some of their uh, soulmates in Western Europe uh, but by many, many kinds of New Age I suppose you could call them, the original New Age cult of the 19th century like Theosophy and others in Germany that grew out of them and that eventually were kind of the the, the, the bed from which uh, the field from which Nazism sprouted with many occultic ideas all of them though about the, to the effect that the Jews are really a pre-flood an anti-Diluvian a before the flood kind of people they are archaic they're out of date they should be extinct it's a mistake they're not extinct and uh, the survival of the fittest and anything we can do to help along the, the, the natural functioning of nature is, uh, is to be done by political and ideological means so this uh, excerpt from the book by Pierre Van Passen the Dutch journalist is one uh, terrible to say small but relatively considering what had preceded this in Russia at the end of the First World War and for a year or two after it especially in the Ukraine and uh, what was to follow throughout all of Europe under the Germans and their many uh, supporters and friends uh, this relatively small incident was a sign of the things to come that there a real challenge is being thrown back into the face of Hashem and a real the, uh, a rejection of his word it's like you know the verse from Psalms the wicked man says in his heart Ain Elohim no God you know, there's no God, or even you could translate it, there's no more God. And, uh, you know, since the Jewish people, the history of the Jewish people and the promise of God to the Jewish people is central to the scriptures, uh, if you can exterminate the Jewish people, that would, so to speak, that would give the lie to God. Well, the nations have been trying, and they have... Uh, They've done a lot. 
especially if you count the what amounted to the genocide committed by the Roman Empire over a period really of two plus centuries starting with the first revolt that the Romans brought on the first war for Jewish independence uh, 1940 years ago and uh, started in 66 CE and the, or the several wars after that Bar Kokhba's being the largest and the records Jewish and Roman of the massive deficit, the millions of casualties the many hundreds of destroyed Jewish cities and villages 680 cities and villages think of that 2 million slaves uh, close to a million dead uh, in the Bar Kokhba revolt alone uh, and then of course uh, throughout the Middle Ages and after the Middle Ages and the Renaissance and uh, so called the rebirth of pagan Greek uh, ideas of many kinds man is the measure of all things uh, and the, the various kinds of arrogance as well as accomplishments that leads to so here, here is a challenge not, uh, for us to, to see this to see this in conjunction with the beautiful Parsha and part of what we see that challenges us is a challenge to our courage our intellectual courage to know, to study and to know these things to know the extent to which the nations not just Islam but Islam stirred up now it's kind of again it's running on its own internal dynamics but it was the British primarily who woke up you know pan-Islamic jihad in uh in the 1920s for the purpose of blotting out of aborting a uh, reborn Israel and here's one prime example so how does a person keep their faith how does a person keep their trust how especially does a Jew keep their uh, faith hope and trust um, when we have this as the background and in the sweep of history going back to Abraham 3,800 years uh, to his birth 3,800 years almost a little more 30, uh, almost 3,700 years till his acquisition of the Machpelah cave uh, if you visited Hebron you know how beautiful the Jewish community is there but you also know how small it is and how it is surrounded by this typically slummy, unimproved Arab dwellings on the hills all around it that make it so difficult for the Jews there to live. So this is something we have to consider. Now I'm going to try to go back and put something uh, else on here. Bear with me, people. I am, let's see here. Success. Baruch Hashem. So, what I've been saying leads as far as recognizing the history of Hebron the glorious history of its acquisition by Abraham uh, his care for Sarah to uh, secure a burial place that was very ample and not just a, not just a burial place Ramban cites many many sources uh, you know that a commentary Talmudic commentary like that of the Ramban Rabbi Moshe ben Nachman from uh, almost 900 years ago is a great colloquium 
spanning more than a millennium of many sages going back to the early Mishnah and of course to the written Torah before the oral Torah and all the great sages after the Mishnahic sages uh, Abraham Ibn Ezra uh, Rashi Rambam uh, and so on talks and makes a point of discussing how Abraham wanted to be did not want to acquire only a burial site but as the written text makes plain but entire surrounding area with ample fields the plains of Mamre and uh, the field there and the same which is the same as Hebron which was already an ancient city uh, in the days of Avraham a city which whose giant walls have been partly excavated by the way if you have not yet been to Hebron I urge you to make that trip uh, soon, certainly by next year. It's very thrilling uh, in many respects. Certainly the history and archaeology show you things that make the text live. Um, but to, to seek, secure an ample settlement place and surrounding uh, fields as the burial place for his family. Anyway, uh, here we have a thought from Pirkei Avot, chapter 2. Be on guard against an autocratic government, for they who run it draw no man near except for their own interests, appearing as friends when it's to their own advantage, and not standing by one in one's hour of need. Now that, it seemed to me, as I read it in the last week or two, was a perfect uh, was a warning that applies perfectly to what happened to the Jews of Hebron in 1929 and to all the Jews in Eretz Israel during the 28 years of the British Mandate which was one of the most brutally cruel and uh, premeditatedly vicious murderously vicious betrayals in all of history as a student of history since I was a, a teenager I don't say that lightly the more you learn about the 28 years that the British administered what the nations call Palestine that is Eretz Israel and that it geographically all of the state of Transjordan which was created by Britain was supposed to be part of Israel and all of the land west of the Jordan that was also the main part of Eretz Israel uh, and they turned it into what we see today and they were not willing to leave until the Jews had been destroyed by the Arabs whom the British themselves armed, trained and in some cases even led into battle against the Jews just as they stood by and watched with the British police commander while the Jews in Hebron and Jerusalem and Tzfat and many other and Tiberia, Tiberius as it's called in English and, and Yafo Tel Aviv were attacked and slaughtered by Arabs in the 1920s and 30s and hanged Jews who sought to defend Jewish communities even when they took in most cases they took no lives among the Arabs so this is one of the great betrayals of history and that leads right to the crises the endless crises in the Middle East that we hear about every single day uh, in the major media for four decades it's uh, the old story the nations take counsel all together saying come let us cut them off from nationhood so Israel's name will not be remembered anymore. Edom and Ishmael, we know who they are. They, this continues the Tehillim. They strike a covenant against you, capital Y, against you, Hashem. Because it's Hashem's promise, Hashem's word, His Torah, His portion, His portion which is His people, Israel and His land 
that they have made their covenant uh, together against. So be on guard against an autocratic government um, uh, in Israel, uh, in Britain, in the EU, the European Union, or even such as our day in America, which is some of you are down there in Texas or surrounding states. Perhaps you know that our government is, uh, has a plan to turn America into a, perhaps I should say, to drown America in a North American Union with Mexico and Canada, which will greatly increase the number of Mexicans and other uh, Latin Americans coming to America for all kinds of reasons, not to mention uh, people from other parts of the world, parts of the Islamic world, for example, and will take away the freedoms and the government accountability that has made America a blessed place and a wonderful place to live and to raise a family for several centuries. So we have to be on guard, just like the Jews in Hebron in 1929 needed to be on guard, and they were not. They were not. Um, to keep it brief, they were not enough. They depended perhaps a too much on the goodwill, number one, of their Arab neighbors, with, to whom they had given so much, loving kindness and material benefits for a, a century and a half and more. Because Hebron was destroyed by the Turks several times after Jews rebuilt it. 1670, 1770, and then by the Arabs and the British, 1929, again 1936, again when the Arab armies came in, 1948, uh, relied too much on the, friend, on the humanity of Amalek. This reminds us of uh, Shal HaMelech. You know, he comes up so often, and of course he should, the first king of Israel. So I was reading a Parsha a commentary the other day, not on this Parsha, uh, I should say a Torah commentary, on uh, Shal and Shmuel Hanavi, and uh, one of the points that the commentator was making was that uh, Shaul HaMelech was brought to Israel by Shmuel according to Hashem's plan in uh, Sefer Devarim, the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 17, you will appoint a king over yourselves. It's a mitzvah. It's a commandment. And uh, very often we're taught, well, the people of the children of Israel, the Jews, were wrong to ask for a king. No. Uh, the commentaries explain it was the way they asked and the reason they asked, the way some of them asked, which was out of desperation or out of anger or out of impatience instead of a king to rectify, as the, as the commentator was explaining very plausibly, I thought, to rectify the blow delivered to Israel's netzach, the blow delivered to Yaakov in his right thigh by the angel of Esau, Samael, sometimes uh, uh, denoted as uh, Satan, uh, Shatan, uh, and, and uh, a wound that needs a tikkun, a rectification that, of course, the first king of Israel would supply, especially by destroying Amalek, which is what you know, was the commandment that, that Shmuel uh, passed on to Saul from Hashem. I have remembered Amalek and what they did to you at the time has come to blot out Amalek. Well, this is, you know, that is a verse for our whole era. That is the verse from the time that Israel became a sovereign state in 1948 and certainly since 1967 when it had the military means to blot out Amalek at least the Amalek and Amalekites in its immediate vicinity and it has not and look at the results you cannot make peace with Amalek 
just like you cannot make peace with uh, the Ishmaelites whose holy book tells them that the Jews are goats and pigs and that they have to be Jews have to be killed for their glory you know and obviously any government that tells you that is a government uh, of sheker uh, of lies of lying and is a govern and is in many ways an autocratic government that puts Jews into jail just like the British did under administrative detention orders uh, instead of uh, attacking and destroying Amalek so that we're having to hear every day about Iran and the Iranian threat and we're waiting for the hammer to fall to get back to the challenge that goes directly to our Parsha because this is part of what we need to part of, part of respecting and understanding the beauty and significance of Parsha uh, Chayasara that follows directly from Vayera and the Akeda, the uh, Abraham's acquisition of Ma'arat Hamakpela, the double cave in Kiryat Arba, the cave of the four couples, Adam and Chava, and the three Avot and their three wives, Sarah, Rivka, and Leah, and uh, the whole plain of Marmara. Part of the uh, the meaning to to really appreciate the meaning and respect the meaning of this parsha and the challenge of Hashem means to understand uh, the situation that the children of Israel are in. Uh, so it's better, like it says, it's better to be a tail to lions than a head to foxes. Um, to try to to secure a place and to be ahead among the foxes in a government that pretends that Amalek can be a friend like the, the kings of Israel always have a tendency to because of their chesed you, prob- you may know that those chapters from first book of kings when uh, King Ahab had attacked Ben-Hadad in Damascus again and defeated him again and Ben-Hadad was running for his life and his advisors say listen, listen your majesty you know the kings of Israel are widely known and revered for their chesed their kindness so just call out to him and say I'm your brother I'm your brother Ben-Hadad and sure enough it worked they came and they cried out to, to Ahab Ben-Hadad is your brother is calling he said yes Ben-Hadad he's my brother and what happens from that is you get a you get an, uh, an 8th century BCE version of the peace process and a few years later the armies of Israel are defeated Ahab is uh, is dead and uh, you get more turmoil and the Assyrians and the Aramites pressed down from the uh, Arameans pressed down from the north well the people of Hebron in uh, 1929 thought that they could depend on the, uh, the friendship of the local Arabs. They thought they could depend, and they should have been able to depend on the British police and soldiers who were in the area and who knew about this, by the way, for at least two weeks in advance, because this was a planned British-Arab project. Uh, if you read the uh, if, you're, if you ever study parts of the two-volume history of the life of Zev Yabotinsky, written by Samuel Katz, you can read about this in detail. How the British and Arabs planned this in advance, and even some Jews know, knew about it and warned the Jews of Hebron. But they thought between their prayers, their tefillah, after all, so many of them were righteous, sweet, uh, observant, good Jews of loving kindness and, and faith in Hashem but uh, Hashem does not want people to rely solely on prayer not even such righteous people as Rabbi Slonin from a great great Hasidic family of, of, of great deeds uh, of settling the land deeds of loving kindness study, Torah study medicine and everything you have to also do you have to defend yourself you have to when your enemy attacks you and takes a Jew hostage God forbid like happens all the time 
we talked about this a couple of weeks ago you have to do exactly what the same Avraham did when he heard that Lot who was not exactly the greatest nephew in the world and not exactly a moral exemplar that Lot had been taken hostage along with other members of his family he gathered up even uh, just a few hundred and pursued the army of the four kings emperors we would probably call them today attacked them at night repeatedly and liberated the hostages and taught them a lesson which was at least part of the reason that when he addressed Ephron the Hittite in Hebron to acquire the Machpelah cave Ephron speaking quite apparently for his whole community says my lord you are a prince of God in our midst tell us what you want and we'll give it to you Abraham was acknowledged even by the Canaanites and uh, the Hittites as a, as a prince of God uh, in their midst these uh, godless people and that was uh, because of his faith a faith that included uh, readiness to go to battle when necessary the same strength that enabled him to uh, pick up and pursue the armies of four empires and kings that had been victorious in defeating the five kings of the wealthy cities of the plain uh, was the kind of unbelievable strength of character that led him up to Mount Moriah uh, and the Akedah and uh, Hashem to demonstrate to him that of course uh, I'm not about to allow you to uh, sacrifice your son it was, uh, it was a test the way none of us should ever be tested not even King David the uh, sages tell us when he says test me Hashem and know my heart and know my ways and they say well part of that test was uh, the test of David with uh, Bathsheba and uh, notwithstanding there are legal niceties that, that made it not necessarily criminal it was not just the uh, deed it was also the thought and the intention he was tested and in that respect he came up short and had to do a very powerful teshuva not only of prayer but that was exacted from him very the most terrible kind you can imagine um, so uh, very quickly some of the uh, the highlights of this Parsha and then I want to mention at least one other of these uh, sayings from Pirkei Avot which we'll still be talking about next week and probably about this Parsha too because all along here we've been talking about the relationship between obedience and faith and the fact that faith has to be active it has to be action in the world this is a core teaching of Judaism and not so much of other religions that come from it in some ways but it tends you know one of the terrible things about the exile is that it tends to be de-emphasized uh, at least where insofar as it involves actions other than Torah study and uh, strict obedience to uh, the times for prayer which is important but it's not the whole thing I'm sure those beautiful Sadiqim and Hebron were very uh, strict and, and very calm, very perfect Hasidim uh, in uh, their times for prayer and their observance of all the holy days and everything else uh, but active also in defending the uh, integrity of every Jewish person and of the entire land of Israel from its enemies something that's in the pages today so we have Avraham's acquisition of a caver and of a surrounding field and, and orchards the entire Kiryat Abba, Arba Hebron as it's called in the Parsha and subsequent Parshas we have um, then his sending the next main event he's thinking about his posterity he's a partner with Hashem in making the promise come true I mean, if he was to be, you know, like some people, Jews and others today, people who uh, are in many respects people of faith, they, they have faith, they have the tachon, they sit back and say, I believe, I trust, 
Hashem will build the temple himself. I'll, I'll be punctilious in my observance and the temple will be built. It's not for me to build it. We know what, what uh, the prophet Haggai had to say about that very vigorously 2,500 years ago. And look at here, Abraham. We don't have to leave the Parsha. Hashem has made him the promise. He said, absolutely, no one is going to cut off your offspring. Not even in the 20th century. Not even in the 21st century by the Gentile calendar. Not the European Union. Not the United Nations. Not Russia. Not the Anglo-American diplomatic elites. Not Ishmael. Nobody is going to cut off your offspring through Yitzhak. Nevertheless, Abraham didn't just sit in his tent in Be'er Sheva or Hebron. He sent Eliezer back to Haran because he knew not to take from these Canaanites and what they're like, the descendants of Ham. We talked about that a little bit uh, when we were discussing Parsha Noah, which is uh, so central to you people always. We know that Canaan is a descendant with Mitzrayim, uh, brothers of uh, Ham. And uh, this is not, you know, this is not a good, uh, this would not, is not a good match. You have to go back to my family and take a, get a wife for my son from there. This is very key. And probably next week we'll talk a lot about Eliezer and his mission, uh, his, the way Abraham relates to Eliezer. And Eliezer demonstrates obedience and faith and initiative which is my main point. That's what I'm talking about these last few minutes with Abraham in sending Eliezer, in bargaining for the cave, to, to bury, and the cave in the field, and the, and the city, really, the part of what became a larger city for Sarah. Uh, he did not just rely on Hashem's guarantee. He went out and he did things in the world. Uh, to make, to help uh, Hashem's promise, to be an active partner in the promise. And that goes back to uh, the ver- one of the key principles of Judaism and for all the Noahides, for all the people of the world. Hashem wants us in an active relationship with Him. He wants us not only to turn to Him, to talk to Him, to, talk, to, to request from Him, to plead from him, to honor him, to obey him. He wants us to be his partners. He wants us to walk in his ways, to use our minds to make you know, informed choices, we would say, insightful choices, choices illuminated by Torah, and to act, to partner with him, to use a, a modern idiom. So this is what uh, Abraham was doing in sending uh, Eliezer back to uh, Haran, uh, back to his descent, to his family, so not to let the uh, divine light that was in his chesed, uh, his predominant uh, quality, be diluted or enclosed in a husk, in a thick shell, a klipa, and if you study that aspect of Judaism to be lost in a, a family that would uh, give bad that be a bad influence in simplest uh, English uh, so he uh, our time is short I'm trying thinking about what to do best so he made one of the things that Abraham set out to accomplish it seems to me when he turned to his trusted servant Eliezer who remember Eliezer was in line to inherit Abraham if you remember early, a few chapters earlier this is what Abraham says to Hashem when he appears to him and he says look I'm going to show you your glorious descendants and you know this, I've made you this great promise and Abraham says oh you know but my Lord Hashem it's, uh, I have no children I have no descendants for the promise my servant Eliezer from Damascus is going to uh, inherit me and Hashem said no, no 
guarantees it won't be. But uh, Eliezer, you know, it's like it's the same idea that you can't take a miracle for granted, as so many Midrashims say. Um, Eliezer is standing there and kneeling there in front of Abraham, listening very, very attentively. And he totally puts to the side whatever human feelings he may have had that, oh my goodness, you know, if somehow I do not find a suitable wife for Yitzchak or uh, no, uh, no woman will want to come with him, who knows, maybe I will share the inheritance. What could be greater than to share the inheritance of Abraham, my esteemed master? But that doesn't even enter into the written Torah. Uh, it's uh, so so complete was Eliezer's uh, love and, obe- uh, and more than o- obedience his love for Abraham and uh, like the love of Abraham that Abraham gave to all people the chesed, the loving kindness as we translate it in English and I think it was this chesed it's part of our challenge to keep our chesed always foremost in our lives supported by Gevura that's maybe you know this is maybe the light leaf of this entire class our fourth class the chesed that that primarily distinguishes Avraham also as Avraham himself showed has to be supported by Gevura in order to be activated in the world in order to survive and to leave descendants and to descend to the to the offspring of Abraham and to the whole world it can't be only chesed uh, Abraham knew this and also uh, Eliezer uh, demonstrated this but he was an active partner with uh, Abraham and with Hashem in the way that he carried out his mission not just faithfully but with such insight there's the key point he was so careful as you know in thinking about well stationing himself at the well and reflecting first what kind of behavior and that's what it was it wouldn't be how would she look did she have a regal queenly kind of appearance or bearing did she look wealthy or etc did she have servant girls attending on her how would she behave those midos, those personal qualities. And what was the quality he was looking for? The same, fitting for Avraham and his, the, the chesed, the generosity. We talked about again the first week, one of the key qualities of the eternal one and the ways that he makes himself known to us in the world is this tremendous generosity uh, to, to create the world in the first place. That's what Eliezer, as you know, was looking for, and that's exactly what he saw, what he found in Rivka, what Rivka, Rebecca, showed to him. And not just the generosity, but a quickness to give, a, an eagerness, a happiness, a joy in giving. It makes one think just of the way Abraham, in chapter 18, at the beginning of Parsha Vayera, uh, the way he even though he is, is communing he's having a vision of Hashem if you can imagine this you could ever get anywhere near that he's having a vision of Hashem sitting there in the tent a few days after his brismillah and uh, three men come up and he jumps up and he runs to serve them, to give them, to make them a meal, get it together and to bring them uh, basins of water uh, to bathe their feet and so on in the same way Rivka ran uh, not only to give Eliezer drink but to give drink for all of his camels and most of the uh, most Chumashim for example if you don't have it yet and you like to follow the Parsha probably many of you do you know the Mizorah art scroll Hebrew English uh, Chumash and most of their books are excellent because not only do you have the Hebrew on the facing page so you can learn and learn some Hebrew and learn how brilliant the Hebrew language is how conceptual it is in the roots of its words but you get a synopsis of commentary a minimum synopsis 
of commentary on the bottom of each page. So uh, you can understand, for example, they mentioned the amount of water, how many times Rivka must have had to go to the well, lower her bucket, and pull the bucket up the well. Uh, it's scores of times. It may have been over a couple of hundred times to water those camels and then carry it all the way down to the trough. And the same kind of eager generosity when Eliezer said, and you know, do you have a place to lodge? And she said, yes, but not only do we have a place to lodge, but also straw and food, you know, for your camels and for you and your servants also is plentiful with us. In other words, please don't hesitate to come in. So, uh, this is all part of uh, all part of Abraham, Eliezer, and Rivka, and Yitzhak, who certainly demonstrates the pure strength and self-control and self-mastery of uh, Gevura, that quality, uh, second of the, the primary virtues that we study about. That is so key in this Parsha, and that is key to us when we consider history, when we can, and when we respond actively to history, when we respond actively, the way Abraham responded actively to the kidnapping of Lot, the way Abraham responded so actively to the appearance of the three strangers, the, the way Abraham responded so actively when Sarah died to seek out and secure an adequate entire, you know, an area, a city, really, the, the center of a city uh, for a place for his descendants. A true, you know, a, uh, a personal uh, heritage in addition to the way uh, Eliezer uh, didn't just follow orders, but he carried out the spirit of the law with insight, with bina, real understanding, and, uh, and Rivka actively hastened uh, to work. Uh, and to show her qualities, to show what she was made from, made of, which is uh, chesed. This is uh, the active response, the active faith that is uh, a key part of the challenge of the eternal one. So I hope uh, that all came through very clear and without any peaks and valleys. If you have any questions, that you'd like to uh, post. There's uh, an email address that our moderator is putting up for us. Uh, please send them to me and I will check them out. I can answer one or two if you want to type them in now. Um, I look forward very much to talking to you again next week. We'll continue talking about Avraham. We'll begin talking about Yitzhak and Rivka. I know this is a big challenge for many people in culture. Uh, I don't want to leave you tonight without stressing how important the topics in the upcoming lessons are because the, as you know, the winnowing out process that began with Adam and Chava and then with their first two sons, Cain and Abel, and continued with Noah, his generation and his family, and continued with his three sons, and then continued with Abraham and Lot, and Abraham's two sons, is there became, perhaps reached its epitome. It, the, the distillation of those choices came with the sons, the twin sons of Yitzhak and Rivka, these, these, these two remarkable, this hero and heroine of history, these two remarkable human beings, Yitzhak and Rivka, Isaac and Rebecca, had twins, as as different as twins could be, uh, fraternal only in the in the uh, physiological uh, sense, uh, Jacob and Esau, and how the uh, the nations in the last 18 centuries or so have chosen to grossly misrepresent what's clearly e what's clear even in the written Torah and to turn good into evil, evil into good and to make it sound like the son to whom Hashem himself 
promised the birthright is somehow a usurper just the way the nations the autocratic governments today like it says in Perkei Avot the governments of foxes that nevertheless have the savagery of wolves and the, the cruel strength of lions without their nobility say that somehow the Jews are usurpers and thieves and the non-nation and despicable people to quote uh, the book of Deuteronomy Parsha Hazinu is some they are the real owners of the land and the Jews has to be expelled or else we can't have a peace this is uh, that that um, conflict between the sons of Isaac and Rebekah Yitzhak and Rivka is with us to this very day this very moment so uh, we will continue talking about obedience and Muna faith and active faith and the qualities of generosity self-restraint the, the limits of self-restraint and affirmation as we proceed through the uh, through the Parshas and the chapters ahead of us I wish you a very good and sweet week uh, a healthy and strong week with good study and uh, good weather too uh, Shalom Shalom I'll uh, talk to you next week. Thank you, Alan and Eileen. Thank you very much. Thank you, Ray, and thank you, everybody.